BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. The star namesake is Victor Davis Hanson, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. His official website is victorhanson.com. We'll talk more about that later. And Victor also has another online uh, aspect on his CV. He's I don't know, we'll create the title, Editor-in-Chief or Boss of the Hoover Institution online publication called Strategica. There's a new issue out, number 83, and it's got two important pieces in there, one on Turkey and one on Ukraine, which we're going to discuss or get Victor's thoughts on, and the other topics, including a recent piece Victor has written, a syndicated column about um, race everywhere. We'll talk about those and other things right after these important messages. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Uh, Victor, so as you know, because you're the boss of it, Strategica is out, um, issue 83. Um, and folks, you should go to the Hoover Institution website and put Strategica in the search uh, box and it'll kick it up. And David Goldman has a uh, piece in this, uh, the lead piece in the issue is titled, uh, What is America's Strategic Interest in Ukraine? And Victor, if you would uh, give your thoughts on his piece and your own thoughts, where they may or may not differ from from David's. But prior, can we talk about another attending piece uh, to David Goldman's uh, lead essay? And that's by uh, Zafiris Rosidas. I don't know if I said yeah, that. Rosi- Rosi- yes, yeah, Rosidas. Okay. Yes. 
And it's uh, titled Turkey and the West, a parenthesis or historical shift. And if you indulge me just by reading the first short paragraph of this uh, essay, uh, a poll conducted in December 2022 by the Turkish company Gazisi found that 72.8% of Turkish citizens polled were in favor of good relations with Russia. By comparison, nearly 90% perceived the United States as a hostile country. It also revealed that 24.2% of citizens of Turkey believe that Russia is hostile, while 62.6% believe that Russia is a friendly country. Victor, Turkey's a member of NATO. I thought they were our ally. Turks hate America. Um, with friends like <laughs> Turkey who needs enemies. What are your thoughts about this particular piece? And then your thoughts about David Goldman's piece. Uh, I first went to Turkey when I was 20 in 1973. And I went, I've been there about 10 times. And each time I have returned, it has become more Islamicist under Erdogan. So there's Turkey that that had the military at a Turk traditions of secularism, you know, the European alphabet, uh, no fezes, no uh, religious discrimination, westernized, and with Istanbul as a window on the West, and now there's the Islamicist movement or counter movement, and it's getting more and more. So part of the problem is inseparable from Erdogan. He does, he is a dictator, and he violated his own constitution. He hounds out uh, enemies after the failed coup attempt of a few, he's paranoid and he says crazy things. So in the last 30 days, he said that Athens may wake up one morning and find a missile coming, heading toward it or in the night, excuse me, from Turkey. And he said that the Dodecanese Islands, which have been adjudicated by a post-war treaty and they've been Greek since antiquity. I know the Italians took them for a while and the Ottomans took them for a while, but they were Greek and he's questioned their sovereignty and he's gone into Greek airspace. He goes into Greek. I think in 1996, they almost had a war there. So that is a, a real problem. The NATO charter doesn't say you have to be democratic, but it implies that you should after the Cold War, especially. And Turkey is, is an anomaly because it has outside of the United States, the largest military in NATO, and it's the only non-democratic government. It's the only Muslim dominated theocracy in NATO. And yet NATO says they've got a lot of soldiers and they control entry into and out of the Bosphorus during the Cold War. They were very valuable in monitoring the Soviet fleet. So there's a problem. And now that problem is it's too big and powerful and hostile to be in NATO, but it's too big and powerful and hostile to be outside of NATO and in the hands of our enemies. That's the official position, as I understand it. And it knows that. So it demands that it be a component participant in the assembly of the F-35, even though they have bought a anti-ballistic missile system, an anti-aircraft system, missile systems from the Russians, which apparently if they're in charge of components in the F-35, they were able to give the Russians that information so that their missile system would have 
would be successful against an F-35. They have tried to veto the applications of Finland and Sweden. Um, you know, treat me nice or you're not going to, I'm going to, because any one country can veto the, the entrance of another. The biggest problem we're having with them is what would you do if they repeat 1974 and they were to invade Cyprus again, or they would send a missile into Athens, or they try to sink a Greek ship, or they would, they're fighting over Aegean natural gas now because they're, they're two NATO members. We've never we've never had a situation where two NATO members, other than 1974, almost went to war with each other. And Erdogan is especially angry because after the revolt of the colonels, remember in 1967, and then the Unidas takeover in, in 73, and then that dictatorship, which was very unpopular and incurred a lot of anti-American wrath because it was supported by the U.S. government as firmly anti-communist. A socialist interregnum came in under Papandreou, and basically from 74 to 2004, it was very hostile to the United States. And that was the pre, or most of that was the pre-Erdogan days, so we we were very familiar and tilted toward Turkey. And now everything's re reversed because the last few governments have been very pro-American. And let's face it, Greece is a democratic government. It's a Christian country. It has a long history of immigration to the United States. There used to be even a Greek lobby, as you remember, in Congress. Right. And it's uh, it's Western. Right. And Turkey's not. So, and so our our relationship with Greece is closer than it has ever been. Even though we understand that Greece has got 11 million people, and these guys got 80 something million, 85 million. So Turkey has all the assets, and it has this record of brutality toward its neighbors. I mean, what does Israel, Armenia, the Kurds, and Greece have in common? They've either been exterminated or attacked or uh, at almost attacked or been in hostile relationships with the Turks. So, but Israel had a good relationship. With it Turkey did. It did too long ago, and, right? and now it's 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 trying to build bridges back again yeah. because of a shared. Uh, they have a shared worry about Iran, although. But under Erdogan, they got very hostile to Israel, say ten years ago, right? And and the Israelis were trying to desperately reforge those earlier friendly relations. But I guess what I'm saying is that uh, in these series of essays, um, and there's been a series of them by Zephyrus, he's basically saying, if you came from a different planet and you said Turkey is a NATO, nobody would believe you. It's its culture is antithetical. Its government is antithetical. It's anti-American. It is not to be trusted it's closer to the soviet uh, to russia than it is to us and why is it in there and i, I guess the answer as i said before is it's too big to be outside right. but no nobody wants it inside nato and nobody wants it outside nato that do sums think, it up do you think first of all i mean erdogan said or claims and was it successfully claimed and persuaded a population that the united states 
was behind the coup attempt. Whenever that what was that, like 2015 or 2016, something. Yeah. Like that. Yes. And uh, was was I guess what I'm trying to say is have the Turkish people, in your estimation, Victor, have they become uh, the poll numbers here show them hostile to America? I think they are because they've they've been under almost 15 solid years of propaganda. And I'll give you two examples of what they're doing. So. The Emperor Justinian built Hagia Sophia, or Holy Wisdom, the, the church, was the largest dome in the world till the 15th century Vatican. And Justinian built it in the 530s AD. And when it was taken in 1453, of course, uh, Mohammed II turned it into a mosque. And of course, they put all of these minarets on it etc. And then they copied some of the architectural planning for the blue so-called blue mosque, etc, etc. Okay. Everybody had understood, especially under the Young Turks uh, anti-Ottomist movement after World War One, that second, they were going to be second, and that would be a United Nations uh, site. And it was. And when you went to, when millions of people go to Istanbul, what do they go? They go to the Top Kapi Museum, they go to the Hippodrome, they go to the underground cisterns, and they go uh, to Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque. So it was a, a museum. And now Erdogan turned it back into a mosque. And it's and, he's, and he claims it was always a mosque. I mean, he, he just wipes out a thousand years of Byzantine history. And then the second thing is, as I said, I think I think they're called, um, well, we have these B-60s or whatever they are. They're huge uh, Cold War relic, dirty atomic bombs. And I think we've got, we had at one point 70 or 80 at Insular around the corner, you know, and you go down to the coast and then it's over, I think it's even east of Anatolia, way east. But in that big base, uh, Erdogan has hinted, and during that coup you you referenced, it, the United States lost control of their own Air Force base. And for a moment, there was a question whether they had control of the nuclear weapons. But Erdogan, in various speeches, has referred to it as a joint American-Turkish arsenal. And he's made it very clear the United States can't take it out. And so there are, I've, I've been told, there are plans or there are contingencies or there are ongoing efforts to take a bomb out, but we don't want them there anymore. Is what I'm trying to say, Jack. Right, and and it's very difficult to to run missions in Syria and stuff from that base anymore. Right. So, uh, and if you had another crisis with Greece, I'm I'm sure the first thing Erdogan would do is shut off that base and try to get his hands on those bombs if they're still there. And so it's not it shouldn't be in in NATO at all. Uh, David Goldman. Is yeah. uh, what, what what answer his question? What is America's strategic interest in Ukraine? That's his piece. Yeah, I mean, David, I try in that group, I try to get different views all across the map. So there's no one consistent, you know, paleocon, isolationist, interventionist, neocon, left or right. And right. So David is a realist. And David's yeah. point is that. You have about three interests in Ukraine. The first is you do not drive, as Kissinger warned, 
Turkey, I mean, excuse me, Russia into the hands of China, you triangulate that either one will be no better enemy, uh, no better friend to each other than to us and no worse enemy than to us. So we, we triangulate the three of us, the United States, China and Russia. And we've lost that now. Two, we've driven, we've kind of created a new alliance where we don't talk about it of China, India, Russia, Turkey, Iran, and of course, North Korea, all of these countries that violate sanctions, sell, uh, buy and trade in Russian oil and are increasingly anti-American. And that was a result that he's very worried about. The third thing is that he can't see why, given that there's large Russian populations in the Donbass region and the borderlines with Russia, borderlands with Russia and the Crimea itself, why we can't have some kind of international plebiscite or oversight that adjudicates and lets those people decide whether they want to go back to Russia or, or, or be in Ukraine. Right. right. And there was a Minsk II agreement that when Ukraine left and they had the initial warring in the 90s, that that would be adjudicated, which never was. And then third, uh, why why is the United States draining our, our logistical, strategic, whatever, reserves of shells, missiles, armor, vehicles here when we have Taiwan on the one hand over here, we have an open border, we have China, we have all of these other issues, and that Ukraine is not a member of NATO, whereas uh, we are we have uh, alliances, they're not NATO members, but we have alliances with Japan and Australia and South Korea. So we have interest in the world, but he doesn't feel that Ukraine is inside that orbit. He's, right. he's not he's not saying just abandon them. He has no problem giving them some wherewithal. But the idea that you're going to give them all these excellent weapons and they're going to have superiority over the Russians and you're going to drive every Russian out from their 2014 borders. He doesn't think it's practical. He doesn't think it's going to happen. Or I should put it another way. He thinks that to make it happen, you would have to have a level of armament and offensive preemptive attacks into Russia that wouldn't be compatible with peace. Right. You know, it's disturbing about that India uh, is is getting wiggy the technical term but i i i'm no foreign policy person as you know victor but a few years ago thought this is good i mean relations with india uh, seem to be pretty good under trump and uh, their own hostility to china but that india may be having problems with america well really Modi, Modi, i think he's got problems with the biden administration and he understands that historically his problem has been um, its its problem is too on its western side. It's got a problem with Pakistan, and on its east eastern side, it's got a problem with China, and it doesn't really have a problem with Russia. And Russia has always been a way a, a method for China to play off China versus Russia. So India, we thought, had the same interest in. Russia not being alienated from the West because it was a break on on China, but that's not that's not true now. And so it's it's 
put it this way, India is not going to cut off Russian oil in the way that Israel is not going to break uh, with Russia entirely because they have interests and those interests are existential. India needs Russian oil, period. Israel needs to be able to operate to protect itself in Syria, that Russia controls the airspace. Right. And, and the problem with Zelensky is, and I, I would be just like Zelensky, he's fighting for the very lifeblood of his country, but he makes these demands on all of his allies that I am the only national interest that you have, given that Russia is an existential imperial power and a lot of people look at the decrepit russian economy it's problem that's down to 140 million people almost right and they they say you know what it, it's it's inept and but it's dangerous because it's cornered and it's wounded and it's got all these nukes so but Zelensky doesn't he, he has a bad habit you know he has very his wife goes into international vogue-like settings shopping uh he's it's not a democracy as, as we thought he has he suppresses the press just like any of his neighbors do in that part of the world right and he, ha he has this tendency to he doesn't mean to but no sooner does he get a, a, a supply of sophisticated arms and he sort of says oh that's not enough it's not enough i need more i need more yeah i need this well, and it comes with loaded with sanctimony and and the implication if 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 you don't give it you're evil yeah i mean and then you have this he appeals he's politicized it and half the country has a long memory and and when i mean that they remember the ukrainian ambassador writing an op-ed during the 2016 election endorsing hillary clinton they remember uh, Joe Biden's son on Burisma. They remember going back earlier, Victoria Newland and interference in Ukraine, that Orange Revolution, all of that episode. They remember Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and his brag that he was offered three times the Minister of Defense while he engineered the impeachment of a U.S. president. So they feel, you know what, this country tends to interfere in U.S. internal affairs a lot, or it invites a lot of corrupt people to profit in it like the Bidens in a quid pro quo fashion. And right. it shouldn't be telling us you know, what we can and cannot do when we're giving them over $100 billion. And to win, we would probably need to give them $400 billion. So that's the subtext behind the Goldman article. Right. And I'm sure that it's not going to be popular at where I work at the Hoover Institution. But again, I'm not endorsing. I'm just trying to give everybody a different view, take on Ukraine and that part of the world. And we have another person who feels exactly the opposite, Joe Joff, in that same issue. And he's a German intellectual, he's the editor of Zeit, a very influential um, magazine, news magazine in Germany, and he would disagree with David Goldman. He's an interventionist, and he keeps trying to egg his country on to take its proper role in NATO and um, to rearm, and he feels that, you know, Russia has brought the West back together again. And Kiev's, I think, I think the headline was what Kiev's are, uh, war is our own. Yeah. And it wasn't in good shape. It was falling apart. It was all, you know, Germany was a 
lackadaisical member, but now the Ukrainian war has galvanized NATO. But I think what galvanized NATO was Donald Trump right. hitting him over the head so that they would pay $100 million more and rearm just in time before the Ukrainian invasion. Yeah, well, will NATO countries be galvanized when they have to pay to uh, rebuild Ukraine the trillions of dollars it's going to take is is uh, beyond me. Hey, Victor, let's move on. Uh, thank, by the way, that's Strategica on the Hoover Institution website, folks. Go, you'll you'll find easily find it. Um, let's talk about um, transgender activism. Uh, 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 activism, excuse me, Activision is, is the game company, uh, Call of Duty, we, uh, transgender activism. And we'll get to that right after this important message. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, JustTheNews.com. That's the home of this uh, podcast, John Solomon's uh, Just the News. Other websites to know about are on Facebook, a friendly place, not official, but friendly to this podcast. Uh, and Victor, it's called the, the Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club. Go find it. Victor's got a, a uh, he's on Twitter at VD Hanson. Look for v, a VDH's Morning Cup on Facebook. And of course, look for the aforementioned VictorHanson.com. That's Victor's official website. Consider subscribing. $5 uh, will get you uh, in the door, and the reduced rate is $50 a year. Why would you subscribe? Because Victor writes a ton of material that is exclusive to that website. It's They're called Ultra Articles. And unless you're subscribing, you're not reading them. And if you're a fan of Victor, you want to be reading Victor. So that's uh, victorhanson.com. Uh, uh, visit it regularly. So, Victor, I, um, I've seen a number of articles and uh, uh, on on tr transgender activism. And this has to do with teachers. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the transgender movement in past podcasts, but I'm going to bear with me here for a second. There's a couple of things uh, uh, in the Daily Mail, which I read regularly. Here, here's a, a chunk, and it's talking about the, the writer is talking about uh, across the country some various places where fights are going on. So. Uh, this week, uh, a California high school history teacher revealed she has helped students change their gender at school without their parents' knowledge and said it was necessary in some cases. Olivia Garrison, an unabashedly progressive non-binary person, told the New York Times 
that and they they use the, the the pronoun they they felt it was their job as a teacher to protect kids sometimes from their own parents my job which is a public service is to protect kids garrison said sometimes they need protection from their own parents clashes between parents and teachers such as garrison are not always solved in the principal's office and end up in court. Here's an here's an example. Single single mom of two, Aurora Regino, who's from Chico near you, Victor, somewhat near you, um, uh, uh, says a school counselor encouraged her fifth grade daughter to transition to a male without notifying her. Uh, Regina Regino, the mother, bashes California's parental secrecy policy, and a school counselor who affirmed her daughter's vague female to male transgender requests within minutes and even press pressured the child. There are other cases cited, one in Spreckles, a place in California, where teachers uh, and school administrators are actively lobbying and and intimidating or pressuring children who, who are not even teenagers yet, many of them, to engage in, you know, gender change with explicitly, explicitly, um, without the parents' knowledge, yeah. this is across the country, Victor, and it's and there's a larger of, there's a larger agenda, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. So, I'd like point zero zero one percent zero zero one is our gender dysphoric. We know that, and we and the phenomenon, as I said earlier on a podcast, it's known throughout. Um, classical literature. And there's a passage of Diodorus in Fragmentized. I remember in his discussion of the Third Punic War where he has a little excursus and he talks about a case where somebody was born with the opposite sex organs of what they thought they were and uh, they had to have some kind of a primitive procedure to produce male organs. So it's known, known, known that it's a scientific phenomenon, but it was very rare. And to the degree that the transgendered movement tried to protect people that were sexually dysmorphic, morphic, it was fine. And and they saw that as an extension of the civil rights as they had seen Latinos and gays and women out of the black American experience. But as always happens, we go from uh, let's discuss gay marriage to you're an existential bigot if you ever doubt gay marriage. So we've gone from live and let live with transgenderism to every single person in the school must be apprised that they have a choice. And that's where people draw the line. And they said, you know what? And you represent the state, you teachers, and we represent the family, and you're not going to intrude between the child-parent relationship. We're just not going to do it. And the state says, you don't own those children. We're sort of like Plato's Republic. We own them. The collective owns them. It takes a village to raise a child, not a parent. And so we're going to interfere. We're going to teach. We're going to, and this is straight out Marxism, as we all know, Marxist-Leninist ideology that you have to go into the family and you have to separate the children from the parents and you have to propagandize and brainwash them into a particular ideology so they're hostile to their parents and they have greater loyalties and affinities to the state and that's what the, that's what this is about so they feel they being the hard left that if you can get millions of kids in the schools to break with their parents 
and to experiment with what is a very, very rare uh, phenomenon and mainstream it, then it's one additional reason why you should champion the state, the teachers, the medical boards, they have the power and not, and not the, the parent. What's ironic about the left is, of course, they are always hypocritical. So we have heard from them, Jack, for 50 years that big pharma is evil and big pharma uses us as guinea pigs and big pharma always has a drug as a solution, not counseling, not organic, not integrative health measures, but big pharma chemicals. And what is this this entire transgender movement pushing? It's pushing radical experimental surgery on preteens in some cases. It's talking right. about very dangerous hormonal treatment, suppression of hormones. It's all big pharma. I can't get over it. And right. And it just shows you again that the left has a hierarchy of ideologies and they just drop and discard whatever they want without any consistency for the larger agenda of taking control and having power. And so everybody, they want a situation that we are rapidly approaching where every single parent who sends their children to school and knows those children intimately since the day they were born is nevertheless going to be shocked because one day the child will come home and says, I know you named me Tom, but you repress my natural constructed. You, you thought I was naturally a boy, but I'm not. I'm socially and culturally constructed as a woman. And you did this to me. And then I need, you know, I need surgery. I need hormone suppression. I need estrogen and vice versa. In the case of women, it, it's sort of, well, in the case of both, it's mutilation. And that's where we are. And so everybody's afraid of the teachers. And they all come out of the school of education. Many of them don't have children themselves. They're, they, they're right. advocates and they want to break up the family and absorb that control and whether it's critical race theory or transgenderism and you could really see when that's really started in 2016 that everywhere that hillary clinton went on every campaign stop she said i want to welcome the lgbt t community and then that what was it the lgbtq or I, I don't know what it was, transitioning, Q. Q, I don't know, queer, I don't know what that was. And queer. then there's plus or something. They keep adding letters to it as if there's all these constituencies with millions of people out there. And again, we can talk about this in the association of race, but you want to get, you have, you want to rendezvous with Yugoslavia, you want to rendezvous with Rwanda, you want to, with the sectarianism in Iraq, just keep it up. Because you're retribalizing America. Yeah, Victor. You know, I, I, I thought there was a little glimmer of hope a year and a half ago when Youngkin won in Virginia, and a lot of that seemed to be had to do with parents, like finally embracing their um, parenthood of their children, at least in school. Which you know, you send your kids to school, and you think you hope. And to get really get involved and down and dirty and fight and go to school board meetings, I mean, it takes a little gumption. It takes gumption just to go, never mind to speak up. 
but they did, and that's you know. So there were political ramifications for parents embracing parenthood and their rights as parents to to uh, oversee their children, and I think that kind of waned uh, last year. I, I think the I, midterm. I think the midterms really depressed people. The senator. I think they thought. Given the polls and given the state of depression among the left, they were very optimistic. They thought, you know, we've hit peak. I wrote a column called Peak Woke. I still think we're at peak woke, but we, I mean, that we've passed it. When I look at what Dave Chappelle or Bill Maher is writing or this long Columbia Journalism Review denunciation of uh, basically of the Russian collusion hoaxes and stuff. So I think we're over the hump. But I think people thought we were, I did. I thought, I think we thought that we were going to pick up six or seven seats in the Senate and maybe 40 seats in the House. And therefore, we were going to pass legislation and force Biden to veto it. But we certainly would stop all, all judicial nominations. And we didn't. And we, all the things that we thought were hokey, Oh, nobody's going to fall for the demagoguery on Will versus Wade. It goes back to the states. The states can decide. There's, it's not prohibiting. Or we'd say nobody's going to think that just get rid of a marijuana conviction is going to make you vote for Biden. Or you don't have to pay back your student loans. Or you get 10 cents cheaper a gallon because he's draining this. And it all worked. It all worked. It all worked. Yeah. And it was like Roadrunner and Wiley E. Coyote all over again. It's like we've been there. We've done it. We went through 2018 midterms. We went down to the 2020 election. We understand ballot curing, vote harvesting, non-election day, absentee ballots mailed everybody. We understand Mark Zuckerberg's 419. We're not... We understand what the left is going to do, and they're going to raise this, and we're going to be ready for it. And we weren't. The same old, same old. Yeah. And so I think that caused a lot of depression. And uh, and I say, when I say that I think we're over peak woke, it's because people are dropping out. They're just not, as I say, they're not they're not participating in the American cultural project. They. They don't right. watch. They don't watch the NBA. They don't go to a Hollywood movie. They, they don't turn. They've. They haven't. If you told half of America what's a Grammy or Tony or Oscar, they wouldn't know. They don't watch that stuff. You think they watch yeah. the View? They don't. They've CNN destroyed itself. Nobody watches it. It's got. A, it's like smaller audience. I think. Than yeah, the, the audience for Don Lamone, as you call him, I think is three hundred. Yeah. 30,000. Uh, and and so I think a lot of people just feel, you know what? I I find myself uh, in a very weird position because everywhere I give a talk and I don't talk about strife, but I get these questions, you know, of, well, don't you think we're having it? We're on a civil war, or how can we be compatible? So what I'm saying is, there's a lot of people when they look at the 120 days of writing, and they look at the January 6th treatment, or they look at the Baltimore reaction versus the George Floyd reaction, 
or they look at the statistics of hate crimes and interracial crimes versus what is said about them, or they they, they just feel like they're the country's crazy, and they look at the homeless, or they look at the border, or they look at deliberately stopping gas and oil production. It just they don't they can't figure it out, and they don't have the power to stop it, even though they have the majority of the population. And yeah. so, and they and they become extremely dissatisfied and depressed, and they're they're looking at you know, uh, one of the things I have to start doing is be more positive and not just point out the pathologies of this country right now, but what you do about them because I get I get overwhelmed with emails and letters, and when I go give a talk, you know, it's kind of ones like this. Yes, yes, we've heard, we've heard, we heard. We know California is terrible. We know it's overtaxed. We know our schools are no good. We know the roads are no good. We know high-speed rail is a, a boondoggle. Why did this happen? What are we going to do? That kind of stuff. Now, I can tell you why it happened. I do it all the time. But what we're going to do, I can't. Because I can't, with all good conscience, say to people, just go out to vote, and you can vote Gavin Newsom's whole bunch out of office. You're not going to be able to do it in this state, not with 10 million absentee ballots or should say mail-in ballots missing. Yeah. Anyway. Well, um, my point, by the way, on the parenthood uh, stuff was uh, in part that I, I do think the Republican Party, for a brief moment, were the party of parents and then dropped that rhetoric. And it is maybe it was just rhetoric at a time at a certain time, but it's to me seems an inspiring, potentially inspiring political uh, point. And it's not to be partisan, but it's to energize and have and empower the parents to actually be parents. And this is one of the tools of of fighting back against this broad insanity and and the perversion of our our, our children. So, Victor, um, we're going to talk about a column, uh, your le- most recent syndicated column race everywhere and some other news stories kind of in the same ballpark and we'll get to that right after this final important message back with the victor davis hansen show a little plug for myself first if you don't mind i write civil thoughts a free weekly emailed newsletter i do that for the center for civil society at the old American philanthropic now, Amphil. It's a dozen to 14 recommended readings, important articles I've come across the previous week. Here's the link. Here's an excerpt. You're intelligent. I think you might like it. Why don't you give it a click? Hey, there's no um, not charging. Again, it's free. I, I do it because I think people... Uh, would enjoy uh, being uh, exposed to other sources of interesting uh, articles. So you can sign up for that at civilthoughts.com. So, Victor, you you wrote a, a, your most recent column, Race Everywhere, and I, I want to lump three other th- news, news articles into this since we're going to be talking about race. One is... Um, sarcastic, although it's just tragic. There was a, a Republican councilwoman, uh, Eunice Dwumfor, yes. uh, who was who was shot dead. Uh, she's from Sayreville, New Jersey, and she was gunned down uh, behind the wheel of her SUV outside of her home. She's a black woman, black woman, Republican. Nigerian, Nigerian immigrant, I think. 
Yeah. Um, got, you know, where's I, I wrote to you, uh, where the hell's Al Sharpton? You know, uh, a black uh, a woman uh, elected official shot down the street. Is it a problem because there's an R after her? Her name. Uh, I don't know. Last I looked, no one's been uh, apprehended yet. Then two other news stories, Victor. We saw many people saw this account of these <clears throat> kids on a bus just beating the hell out of this other kid in uh, Miami. This has been ongoing bullying. And what is the, the, what's the the, the Miami school system's response? Uh, well. Um, it's wrong that this video got out. Not that they, they're allowing this. Or, or take your kid out of the school. We can't protect her. Right, right. And there, uh, was, a, imagine, there was a bus driver and an attendant on the bus. And they were exonerated. They didn't do anything wrong. You know, immediately, you know, the union kind of mindset comes comes into play there. And then the last race-based thing was you know, the story. I forget the name. The, the doctor was a California doctor on a bicycle, hit by a car. And then the car driver stopped, gets out, and he stabs the guy. He's dead. And uh, the the driver the, who was apprehended, the the, the alleged murderers of, of I saw mixed race. And I, was, I look, I hate to get into this because I just I don't look at anyone except uh, I like to think of Martin Luther King mindset of you know content of character, but you know. Why is it he's black? You look at the pictures, the guy's black. Why is it mixed race all of a sudden? Is that to lie because he's a uh, black guy who killed no. the white guy? You know, there I mean, isn't there is no there is no such thing as mixed race when you're applying for affirmative action. This the 116th drop of the old racist confederacy applies. So if you want to join the tribal gaming commission and you say you're a Native American and you just need 116th, you don't say I'm mixed race. And Barack Obama never said I'm mixed race, at least when he wanted to be the affirmative action minority candidate. So when people want to stress their fides and they feel that it has a particular uh, reward behind it or it's advantageous, there's not mixed race. It's only mixed race when it's the other way. And so, as I said before, if you were a person from a planet X and you landed on American shores and you said, hmm, let me study this strange species of humans, these Americans. Ah, and you could you could say, well, when we came in 1950, people who were black were trying to pass for people who were white. And now we've come back and people who are white are trying to pass for, as people who were not white. So, therefore, it must be that in 1950, it was advantageous to be white because it was a racist society. And now it must be advantageous to be non-white because it's a racist society. And that's what anybody would would see if you were, you know, disinterested and empirical. But uh, the, the funny thing is, all, all of these cases show the utter intellectual uh, poverty of the left. For example, when people, uh, when we had the George Floyd case, people and you people would say, well, yes, that was terrible what he did, but there's almost 10,000 uh, African Americans killed every year. They say, yes, but it's not the government doing it. That's different. These are the police. These are public servants. Or if you said, yes, but 
if you look at interracial crimes, African-Americans are six times more likely to commit them against whites than whites or blacks. They say, yes, but it's that's a private thing. It's not the government. But this is the government. This is a school bus. This is a government school bus. And this nine-year-old girl was attacked in a terror attack by two, I guess he was 14, another was much younger, and they tried to kill her. And there was a government employee that represents our public schools, a hollowed-down institution that did nothing. And there was an attendant on the bus that did nothing. And that was a racist attack, and nobody said a word. Nobody said a word. And let me ask you, Jack, or maybe all of you who are listening, do you really believe that there had been a white blood bus driver and a white attendant and a predominantly white bus and there was a nine-year-old black girl and two white teenagers beat the crap out of her without any intervention that there would not be a national scandal right now and the opera cities and would be burning yeah. cities would be burning and so it's all predicated on asymmetrics that we had a terrible history of slavery and jim crow and we have absolution and we have okay that goes so far but we're 60 years out of the civil rights movement now and there's a whole two generations or three generations that grew up under affirmative action they don't know anything about jim crow they have to take it by your word the legacy of racism is still there and all that but if you keep having these asymmetrical situations another thing was asymmetrical the left always told us remember that book words matter was that cornell west who wrote that words matter and the point was that you have to be very careful in your speech about race you have to use the proper vocabulary because it filters down to the street and it can cause violence and the left is always saying i didn't feel safe and so we've been subjected since uh, May of 2020 to a constant mantra of white privilege, white rage, white supremacy, white privilege, white rage, white, white, white. Uh, Joy Reid on TV saying, uh, guess what, everybody? This is now we're down to 66 percent whites or Ellie Mistel, the lawyer from Harvard that's on cable TV. Oh, I, I just don't want to see white people anymore. Remember the New York psychiatrist who said she she was speaking at Yale? And she had dreams of shooting white people. Yeah. And and I, I dreamed that I shot somebody. Uh, and we get that all the time, all the time. Remember uh, Sonny Hostin on The View that white Republican women were like bugs going to raid if they voted. Right. So that's just all okay. But I'm telling you that you may be right. Words matter because it filters down. So we have a doctor who did more in one year to help humanity than his attacker did his entire life. And he's riding his bicycle. And this person of color swerves. And I'm going to say why I said person of color in a second. He swerves and knocks this doctor who saved countless lives off his road bike. And he you can see the video. He just splatters through the intersection. Somebody who's been in the same situation with a two uh, bike accidents, I can tell you, you're lucky you're alive. And that's not enough. That's not enough. He has to go into the intersection and finish him off and execute him. And then he's supposedly, if you read the Daily Mail account, he says, white privilege. And he's angry. And he, and he So it's a clear hate crime. I haven't seen Merrick Garland give a press conference that this was a hate crime, that the person uttered a racist 
contemptible slur that explains why he destroyed somebody's life with his car and then finished him off uh, in the intersection. And we're supposed to be like the Florida case. We're supposed to say, you know, things happen. But it's all predicated on this idea that the white supremacist, the white rager, the the white privileged person has all these advantages and he's very dangerous. And remember the, the African-American, I don't feel safe. Remember Michelle Obama? I just don't feel like my kids could walk out someday. They could, they could just walk out and be gone. Well, yeah, Michelle, because statistics don't lie. And there's almost eight to 10,000 African-Americans murdered by African-Americans. And there's very few uh, murdered by non-African-Americans, but they don't, they don't tell you that. And so you're, you're getting to the point where, uh, if you keep it up, I don't know what people are going to do. And we we jump the racial shark with the, you know, with the Memphis shooting. So if you if you say that the five black officers who beat to death a black suspect who hadn't really done anything wrong and they did that out of white racism and then you say trying them for first degree or second degree murder is white racism and then you say that. The grassroots appeal of a crime-ridden neighborhood for police help was the catalyst that created the Scorpions, an anti-crime unit that is predominantly made up of African-Americans on the prompt of the black chief and the black assistant chief. And if you say that's racism, then there's no other, there's no hope. You can't do anything. Right. Because everything is racism and nothing's racism. So I guess what I'm saying is that when you look at this so-called white boogeyman, you would expect certain characteristics of the white privileged, violent oppressor of the people of color. And we can go down them very quickly. He must be homicidal. Well, no, he that white male commits homicide homicides, according to the FBI data, at less at and less percentages than his percentage in the population. He's what the left calls the underrepresented. So then he, he's what? Well, he's suicidal. He create, he kills himself at twice the number. People who are prey on other people don't kill themselves. People kill themselves out of despair for a variety of reasons, but white males are killing themselves at double the numbers of Latinos and blacks. Well, then maybe he just avoids military service and lets people die in his place. That's what they said about Vietnam, even though it's proportionally represented, if I could use that taboo word in matters of life and death. But no, I mean, as I said earlier, and I've quoted that ad nauseum, White males died at twice their numbers in the population in our recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, then maybe he commits hate crimes. That's what he does. That's what white people. No, he's underrepresented in hate crimes. Well, then maybe he's, oh, well, he's overrepresented in interracial crime. No, he's underrepresented. He's a victim more than he is a victimizer. So by any empirical data, you don't see the data of a white, dangerous, predatory male which we're told he is in very racist fashion. So then you say, well, what do you do then? Well, you you put adjectives in. You say racism is systemic because you can't really see it because the data is not there, at least in, 
your terms of your definition of a violent white privileged white rager, or you say it's insidious or an aggression is a micro. It's still there. It's just micro. And you can really see it. What other things are going on? We fought the civil rights battles to stop. It really started over not just voting, but housing. Because African-Americans would go to a landlord and they say, nope, I'm not renting to you. And they had all these ballot propositions in California in the early 60s. And they were, you know, open housing. And they didn't win because people wanted as landlords to pick and choose who could. they had to turn their property over. And the, and the courts then said those were unconstitutional and we had open housing. But how you go on these universities, Jack, I walked from my apartment at Stanford through the campus and they have black and Latino and Asian. They have all of these theme houses. That's the word. They're segregated houses. You can't go in there if you're not the particular race. They have safe spaces. And at Pomona. Can I, can I just we, say, Victor, you, yeah, you, you, you raise these points in the column you've written about yeah. the, about many things, but about the housing. I, I, people should really check out this column. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then and you can pick the race of your roommate if if the person's not white. If you're a white person, you say, you know what? I never thought this was true. I believed in the vision of Martin Luther King, but my African American fellow students have told me that birds of a feather flock together. So I just want to have a white roommate. Can you imagine what would happen? So it's all predicated on a historic. Uh, oppression by the, the the institution of slave and yet yeah, but we're in the 233rd year of this country and we're 158 years out of slavery and it's not resonating not when you have these sky high crime rates especially after the george floyd and not after you have these loony uh jesse juicy smollett uh five black policemen are are killing another black person because of racism, we, that's not going to sell. And when you see these interracial crimes, like two African boys terrorizing, trying to beat to death a small little girl on a bus with impunity that nobody will intervene, or you see an uh, apparently an part African-American, you say mixed race, but if he deliberately swerves to kill a doctor who he thinks is white, and he's so angry at white people that he even mentions white privilege as he goes and executes him in an intersection and nobody says a word, then you're very, it's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to be sustainable. And when I, I quoted the National Association of Scholars when they said 173 right. schools they surveyed, 42% racially segregated residents, 46% racially segregated orientation, 72% racially graduate and that's not what it really means segregated that just means that in those particular uh activities you can't go in if you're white so if you have a black graduation and a latino says i'd like to go on they probably let you in if you have a latino graduation you're black they probably let you in but not if you're white that was the that was the hallmark achievement of barack obama with diversity that he created a updated Jesse Jackson Rainbow co uh, Coalition. And ultimately, you know, it there's it's it's so chaotic because you mentioned mixed race, but they don't know what makes an, an interracially an intermarried and interracial society. They don't know what makes a person a particular race. They just take it 
on trust. So if Stanford says only 23% of the incoming class is going to be white, that is less than 33% of what its actual numbers are in the demographic, well, they don't know what the actual DNA of the person who says he's Latino or black are. They just take it as their word. I don't think they ask for DNA. I don't think they ask for genealogical tables. So, and that, but they do offer, you know, incentives not to be white. And the, and the more you say that, the more they call you a racist. But all you have to do, there's a reason why Elizabeth Warren said she was Native American. If you took away affirmative action and her law professorship at Harvard, and you just had her living in Oklahoma as, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you think she would say that she's Native American? I don't think so. And ultimately, this isn't going to work, and it's not working now. And as I say, and I've said this ad nauseum, tribalism is like nuclear proliferation. Once somebody goes nuclear, the next person, next nation says, not this pig, I got to go nuclear. So I can already see it, Jack, and I I can already see it. And I think that any racist minority person who wants to identify by his color or his appearance or his culture and exclude other people is inviting that to happen with other people. So when I go places as strangers in heavily minority areas in which I live, I've never seen anything like it. There's almost a natural affinity. People come up to you. Hi, how are you? As if you're the last person that looks like me in this community. Or when I go see somebody from high school, they'll say, what happened to all these white people? They all left. Well, I didn't leave. And they say that to you. And it, it, it's, it's, do they, is that what you really want to happen? That 67% of the population is going to start identifying as white because it's okay if you're African-American, it's okay if you're Latino, it's okay if you're Asian. And then you're going to say, well, you're the majority. No, you're not. There's six states. Texas is one. California is another where the majority population is not white. It's a majority. It's a minority majority where there's no majority. And and, uh, whites are not the largest number. In California, they're not the largest ethnic group. And if you start looking at Privilege. Well, there's, as I said in the column, there's 15 or 16 ethnic groups. They're all there. Sikhs, Pakistani Americans, Arab Americans, I think uh, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans that are making more money than so-called generic whites. So this is something that the left created and they thought that it would resonate and get out the vote and they could win because they their economic policies were elitist, they were bicoastal focus, and they turned off the old Hubert Humphrey, JFK, white working class. They drove them out of the party and they became parole voters or they became Reagan Democrats or blue dogs. And Obama brought some of them back in because they couldn't stand John McCain and Mitt Romney. But by and large, the Democratic Party said to themselves, we don't like these people, these working white religious nuts in the middle of the country. 
I quoted a couple of things to that extent in the dying citizen where one uh, immigrant from Pakistan said, this is good. Let's get rid of these people. Get them out. And remember, Bill Crystal got kind of a hot mic at the AEI where he said, you know, I don't know what's the problem with the illegal immigration. Everybody kind of gets used and lazy and that's what's happened to white people. So it's good to bring in people to replace them. And I had the, this CEO, minor CEO, uh, I quote in the book where she said, after the 2016 election, these people live in shitholes, excuse the language, they're awful, they're schools, and she was talking about the Midwest, or the CNN reporter says, I'm at a Trump rally, I have more teeth than everybody here put together, or the stroke page, remember that? Uh, these We went into Walmart, and you can smell these people. Are the deplorables, are the irredeemables, are the clingers, or Joe Biden's contribution of dregs, uh, John McCain's crazies, all of that stuff. And they keep pushing, 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 and they shouldn't do that because it just divides people. And you're creating an artificial bond that's not there by race. I can tell you that I don't know a lot of white people. I'm sure I'm not one who feels when I see a white person, I'm intrinsically have more solidarity than right. the Mexican-American friends I grew up with. Right. But if they keep pushing, the, those elites say to the Latino community, you are Latino first, then, and the black community says, we are blacks first, and we're not individuals, we're only collectives. And, and whites are collectives as well, then you have to act like a collective, and that's not good. Right. And so, and you know, when you say white privilege, white privilege, white privilege, white, you're talking about 240 million people as if they're all the same. I don't have any affinity with Al Gore. I don't particularly like John Kerry. I don't want to be at a party with Nancy Pelosi. I'm sorry. Yeah. I have nothing in common with them. Right. I'd rather be with Jose Acosta in Salma, you know what I mean, than with Nancy Pelosi or Dianne Feinstein. So, but is that what, I thought that's what we're supposed to be. But if these these groups keep saying, no, 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 you can't have it both ways. You can't be an individual and a collective. You, you can't say all white, uh, you can't be in the view every day and say all white people do this. They're like cockroaches going to white, 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 or Mark Milley, white, white, white. And then not say black, 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 Latino, Latino, Latino. Yeah. So it's 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 headed, it's headed in a bad direction. And we have a rendezvous if we're not. If somebody doesn't stand up and say, stop it, shame on you, you're a racist, no matter who you are, white, brown, black, yellow, you are a racist. Every time you talk in racial terms, you are a racist as a collective. Every time you do not mention the individual, but you talk about the collective, you are a racist. It'll stop. And, and when they call us racist, every one of you who are listening, you said, I don't care what you call. I'm not a racist. You're the racist. Yeah. You're the racist. You're the racist. Professor Kendi's is a racist. He said that. He yeah. said that. Al Sharp, you mentioned Al Sharpton. Al right. Sharpton is a bona fide racist. He made his career in racism. 
He projected power through racism. He's never apologized for Tawana Brawley. He's never apologized for Crown Heights. He's never apologized for the rhetoric about, you know, put your yarmulke on and come over to my house, get it on. He's never apologized for his anti-Semitism. He's an out-and-out racist, has never been called to account, never has. Farrakhan hasn't, never. And it's just amazing, you know, that that you that with the double standard, when you have a picture of Barack Obama smiling with Farrakhan and that's considered OK. And if you had any other white politician with a Ku Klux Klan person, he's done, done. He should be done, but not Barack Obama with Farrakhan. And the picture was suppressed during the campaign for eight years. And so yeah. it, there's got to be an equality under the law and the quality of treatment. And if it's not it. And as we speak, Jack, people are saying, where have you been, Jack and Victor? Don't you know how the world works? That's why I am moving and they're self they're self-selecting. Well, I know how the world worked. And Victor, we you know, you and I have to honestly say, looking the racially, America was was in my youth anyway, it was lots of was not a pretty picture, but it was clearly improving markedly. And happily, I thought much better than now, right? And then all of a sudden, it had to because because uh, ideologues started hitting these themes. Things have gotten. I can tell you right now, we're getting better. I graduated from a rural school in 1971, in which the community was about 50 percent hispanic mexican-american 10 percent asian and african-american and 50 45 50 percent so-called white when i was my senior they had student body elections and i was the campaign manager of uh, jose avila a mexican-american and he was running against a very prominent white kid in cloud in the community and everybody, you know, in the white community said, wow. And I tried to explain, I don't, I, I think Mr. Avila is a much better candidate. And he won. And the next year, I can tell, tell you that the student body president was African-American and the year behind me. And this is in a town that had about three or four percent African-American. And his sister was the vice president uh, in the class ahead of me. And I can name, I mean, it was, I'm sure if you went back and asked them, would, would there a racism? They'd probably say yes. But it, there was not these types of racial uh, incidents. There really wasn't. And it wasn't just because uh, the whites controlled everything. It was already starting to change because of immigration. And the, the population had gone from 90% white to 88% white to 85% white. But another thing that people don't understand, you show me any majority culture, racial group anywhere in the world, anywhere, and you will see tensions and that and that particular majority group be faulted for not being sensitive to minority groups. And that's what's happening right now. When you see the Latino majority, it's being faulted by other groups. And you can see that with that famous L.A. Council hot mic where three right. Latinos were racially stereotyping and disparaging fashion, whites, gays, 
Asians and indigenous people from Mexico. And the kid, the adopted kid was black, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a mess. And that's why a lot of people just, they don't, they don't want to get near it. They don't want to get near this topic. They don't, they just want to be left alone. And right. I think the left is really erred. You can really see it when you look at, listen, I mentioned Bill Maher, or Dave Chappelle. There's people black, white, whatever. They're getting scared about what's going on. Because mm-hmm. uh, when you have the out, out, the, we just saw in California the execution, the execution of a brilliant doctor. Right in broad daylight, a man ran him over and then walked up to him and shot him in the head and executed him and muttered white privilege. And not one, there hasn't been any coverage of that. There hasn't been any statement by the president. There hasn't been anything. And that's, and there hasn't been anybody talking about this except the people that downloaded this girl on a bus. And those were iconic moments of just pure racial hatred, and nobody said a word. And they involved, in one case, the government. Well, Victor, we... Um, we went over today. My it's thought. okay. <laughs> there's, never, there's no official time limit, but, uh, you know, we're given kind of parameters. So, uh, But that's roughly about what we have, except we will conclude with the usual business we do at the end of the these podcasts to thank everyone who's here listening no matter what platform you do that from some who do it from iTunes slash Apple rate the show zero to five stars. Most practically everyone of five stars. Thank you very much. Some leave uh, remarks and comments and we read them, take them to heart. And uh, I always read one at the end of the show. Here's one from LDTAZ, LDTAZ. And it's titled Voice of Reason. I've been listening to VDH since prior to the 2020 election. Unfortunately, I've not been aware of the vast knowledge, expertise, logic, reason, and good old common sense existed in an, in an individual that was willing to shout it from the rooftops. And to think he resides in my backyard as a fellow citizen of the Southern San Joaquin Valley here in Visalia, California. So glad I found a voice of reason in this tumultuous and chaotic time in the USA. We are, we find ourselves and I spread the word of EDH to everyone I come into contact with of whom uh, share the same values as those of us who believe in our Republic. Thanks for your voice and willingness to share with all of us. What a blessing and breath of fresh air. Love the VDH show. That's LD Taz. So thank you for that, LD. Thank you all else who listen. Victor, thank you for your great thoughts today. Appreciate it. And folks, we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson show. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. See you next time. 